Well, we are going to continue through the book of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 7 today, so we're going to... That clock is off. We, they redid it, so we can kill the clock. If you're looking at that timer and think you still have more time, that's not accurate. It got reset. That's all right. We were trying to be gracious. No. Uh, we are continuing through the book of Mark today, Mark chapter 7. So if you have your copy of God's Word or one of the pew Bibles in front of you, turn to Mark chapter 7. We're going to read verses 24 through 30. Mark 7, 24 through 30. So once you get that, if you would stand with me as we read this together, starting at verse 24, it says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the, little, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for uh, this Gospel of, that has hope, that has such good news. Lord, I pray that as we look at Your Word this morning, that You would speak to us, that You would fill us with Your presence, that You would minister to our hearts, that You would give us wisdom and insight through Your Holy Spirit. We thank You, we love You, we praise You in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Some people look at this text and they find it a difficult text. First glance, there are some things that we could walk away with that, that would be completely inaccurate. Um, and at first, when I saw this text that I was going to be preaching on, I said, why did I uh, break it up in this way? Because this is a hard text. And the more I looked at it, uh, and thinking, you know, those six verses are going to be, uh, you know, this is just going to be a hard one. The more I've looked at it this week, the more I thought, man, I don't know if we have enough time dive into this text. It's actually become a text, and I know I say this a lot, but it's become a text that has suddenly become a favorite of mine, and I actually titled the sermon today, The Gospel According to the Syrophoenician Woman, because in this text, and, and, and I appreciated so much Nathaniel last week, talking about the importance of context and how the Bible is one book, one story, it's the story of redemption, from Genesis through Revelation, it is uh, important to maintain the continuity of the entire book. It is important to not just pull one section out of Scripture, out of context, and, and completely, potentially miss what is going on here. The, the context of the story, uh, you know, just in, the, in the, the overall of Mark so far, what we're seeing, you know, last week we talked about the clash that, that was going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. And this idea of eating with unwashed hands and, and violating traditions and, and, and how, how Jesus addresses that and says, you know, it's not about what you take in that defiles a person, but it's what comes out. And that's going to be something important that we're going to look at in a little bit. But Jesus has this, this clash with the Pharisees, and suddenly, uh, here, here leading into our story today, Jesus goes away, He leaves there, He goes outside of, of Israel, in fact, to a faraway place, and He's going to teach His disciples an invaluable lesson, one that is going to be vastly important for us. And, and, and as we look at that, you know, there's so many different directions I thought about going with this text this morning because as I began to look at it, uh, the thing that stands out to me, probably more than anything in this text, is that we can get a glimpse of the glorious nature of our gospel and the vastness and the incredible magnitude of His grace towards us. It's just fascinating. It's an amazing thing. And so I want to look at this this 
this text with the understanding that we're looking into the riches and the vastness of the grace of Christ. And as we walk through it, I'm going to kind of point through about five things that we're going to look at. Um, and, and, and we're going to read through it verse by verse and, and kind of talk through it. But the first thing I want us to note is the place. Okay, It says in verse 24, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. The place. And you start by just kind of, I want you to visualize it a little bit. You know, he's been in the Sea of Galilee. And the region of Tyre and Sidon is up on the coast about 50 miles away. Okay, I want you to put that in perspective. Jesus, with His disciples, they get their little band together. They have this clash with the Pharisees. Jesus then walks, because they didn't have cars, there were no trains, He walks about 50 miles away. Put that in perspective. I did a Spartan race a couple weeks ago. It was 13 miles, and it took us about six hours. I don't know how long it takes to walk 50 miles because I've never done it. I'm not sure I ever want to. That's a long ways. It's modern-day Lebanon, if that helps you. Um, it's along the coast. Remember, Jesus has been talking with his disciples over and over again. It's time to get some rest. It's time to get some rest. So essentially what's going on here is Jesus has kind of found a vacation home on the beach. That's really what's going on here. It's, it's along the coast. It's a house probably along the coastline somewhere. So the guys are getting in their little R&R and, and they're, they're resting along the coast. He's, he's looking for a time to just spend alone with his disciples. But I want us to consider not just the location of it, but there is a laundry list for this region of Tyre and Sidon. And it's not pretty. So Jesus has retreated from Israel. He's gone to Tyre and Sidon. And this is the home of one of the first great oppressors of Israel, a woman by the name of Jezebel. Maybe you've heard of her. She came from this region. Not a very pretty area when you start considering what's going on. Ezekiel talks about Tyre. And he talks about in Ezekiel chapter 26, he prophesies because of its pride and arrogance that it's going to be destroyed. It's a hotbed for immorality and false gods and all kinds of false worships going on in this area. It's a place with a lot of strikes against it and especially for anyone who would be Jewish. This is where Jesus is gone. It was outside the borders of God's chosen people. That is so important for us to comprehend. That Jesus left Israel proper retreated across the borders into a place of vast wickedness and immorality and, and, and a history of it too. So that's the place. And then it says, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. But I also want us to understand the purpose. So why here? Why did Jesus go here? says that he went and he entered a house and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. I think there's three reasons. The first one is timing. Consider that Jesus' timing had not yet come. He had just had a clash with these Pharisees. He essentially told them, hey, you guys are wrong. You're obeying traditions above the commandments of God. And, and there is, in fact, we're told in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, that, that the Pharisees had an active plot to destroy Jesus, to kill him. It wasn't his timing. How many times, if you read through the Gospels, does Jesus say, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. And then he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, the hour is at hand. Jesus had a timing. From the very beginning, God had planned the plan of redemption. That's what's so incredible about this book is that from the beginning in Genesis, God knew that this is the plan of redemption to bring His people out of this slavery to sin and bondage. And He had a specific timing and a specific plan. And if He would have stayed, most likely they would have got the lynch mob out and it wasn't His timing. So that's the first purpose that I believe Jesus withdrew out of the region. The second one is teaching. He's going to teach His disciples an incredible lesson. His time with them is drawing to a close. Consider this. I, I hadn't really thought about this, but you, you, you consider that his disciples, he's getting ready to hand the keys over to the ministry to them when he uh, has, has gone up to heaven. Consider this. These guys are probably all in their 20s. 
Think about that. We talk about church leadership being young. These guys are probably all in their 20s. Jesus is 33 when he is hung on the cross. These guys were probably all his peers. That's young to start to take over the ministry which Jesus has started. And so he's wanting as much time alone with them to teach them, to train them, to prepare them. And his lesson that he is about to teach them is incredible. It's actually a visual illustration of what he has just taught the Pharisees. Remember what they were, you know, the Pharisees are arguing that they're eating with unclean hands, that they're going to defile themselves. The Pharisees had these rituals of washing their hands, especially when they came back to the marketplace because they could have come in contact with a Gentile. And, and they, were, they, they had all these things that they were defiled if they even shook the hand of a Gentile. And what does Jesus do? He goes to Gentile region, and it says that he enters a house. Guess what? I am venturing to guess it's probably a safe bet that that house was owned by a Gentile, which would have been a major defilement in Jewish culture. And you know what Jesus is saying? I am going in and it doesn't defile me. It's a visual lesson. It's a visual lesson, too, of his ministry. It is a picture, a small picture, and there's going to be lots of small pictures that are a great big picture of the gospel that Jesus says, guess what? I can go into any undefiled location and make it clean. And he can say, I am going to the undefiled Gentile, and I will make my home in him, and he will be clean. What an incredible thing to start to think about. But not just this aspect of entering into a home, entering into Gentile country, but Jesus talks to a Gentile woman. The epitome in Jewish culture of defilement. So Jesus has these disciples here, because sometimes we read stories like this and we totally forget that there's an audience this whole time. Jesus is preparing these men. He's going to tell Peter eventually, hey, don't you ever call unclean what I declare clean. And he enters in this place with this lesson for his disciples. But there's a third reason for this purpose. One that I find amazing. Notice what it says in the text. It says he entered the home. He did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Their third reason is tenderness. The tenderness of Jesus is why he went to this region. Think about it. It says he came here and he could not be hidden. Can, can, can we just pause and think about that for a moment? He could not be hidden. Jesus, God Almighty, could not be hidden, really? You, you really think that's possible? I mean, we can read through other gospel accounts and it tells us in, in John chapter 8, uh, 58, that um, he had spoken in speaking to the Pharisees. Uh, they had become angry and uh, it says that he literally hid himself from them. In John, and I'm sorry, in, in I believe it's in Luke chapter 4, it talks about how he spoke in the synagogue and they became angry and they began to gather up and they were going to throw Jesus off a cliff. And what does Jesus do? He walks through them. You're telling me that Jesus cannot hide himself? No, Jesus can hide himself whenever he wants. He chose not to be hidden. And the reason it says in the original language, it says he could not be hidden, but, and I think it's proper, maybe a little better translation, for the woman. And I want you to put this all together. Jesus went to the region of Tyre and Sidon for one of three reasons was the woman. He went there for her and her little daughter. He traveled 50 miles out of his way for this woman and her little daughter because he knew full well ahead of time what he was going to do. It's the second time that Jesus travels out of his way for a Gentile woman. If you remember in John chapter 4, Jesus speaks to this woman at the well. At the beginning of that chapter, in John chapter 4, I think it's verse 4, it says, as he was traveling, he had to pass through Samaria. No, he, he really didn't, if you look at the map. He chose to pass through Samaria because he knew there was a woman at the well that needed to hear the gospel of good news. 
Jesus didn't need to travel 50 miles out of country to find rest and relaxation to spend time with his disciples. He knew that there was a woman there who needed him because she had a a daughter with a demon. So Jesus travels this far-reaching place across borders in a, in a wicked, uh, adulterous, immoral place because of his timing, because of his teaching, because of his tenderness. But I want us to look specifically now about this person, this woman. It says, Immediately a woman with, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, there's a fun word to say, by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. There's two problems that this woman had. Two very big problems. And the first one is barriers. She's an outsider. She doesn't belong to the people of God. She's an outsider. Culturally, she was an outsider because she was Syrophoenician. And, and, and without getting into too many details about that, essentially the big takeaway is she's not an Israelite. She's part of a region. She's Phoenician by birth, which is, which is a place um, in, 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 in uh, Africa. And she was also uh, living in Syria area. And so she was a Syrophoenician when you put it together by birth. She was non-Israelite. She had barriers socially. She was a woman in a patriarchal society where men uh, uh, led and did and were in charge. And, and men were the ones that had the importance in this culture and society. She uh, is not mentioned. Where's her husband in all of this? She has a child. So, you know, we could, we could go into all kinds of things and we're not going to necessarily be able to come up with an accurate statement. You know, is there a husband somewhere? Uh, is she taking matters into her own hands because her husband is not willing to help? Uh, what's going on? We don't know. And, and maybe husband's on vacation for all we know. We don't know. Maybe she had a child out of wedlock, which makes her even more socially unacceptable. We don't know. But the point is, socially, she had a barrier that she was not a male in this culture. And religiously, three strikes against her. She was a Gentile. She was a woman. And her daughter was unclean because of being demon-possessed, which meant she probably took care of her daughter and therefore had contact with this defiled child. So if you go to Jerusalem in these days where the temple courts were, you would find walls of separation and they had different courts. They had the court of, of, uh, uh, of the Gentiles, which was outside. Those who were interested in Judaism could only go there if they weren't a Jew. Then you had the court of women, which is where this woman, if she was a Jew, would be allowed to go, but still couldn't go any further. There were walls everywhere to remind people of barriers. And, and the reality is in Jerusalem, this woman would have never had a chance to get anywhere close to a religious leader. She was a Gentile, she was a woman, and her daughter was defiled, therefore making her defiled. In Judaism, this woman has no, literally no access or any hope. She was an outsider. That is so important to this text as we dive into it even deeper. There was no hope, no access, nothing. She was an outsider. I said there were two problems. The first one is the barriers. The second one is brokenness. She literally had no more options. This was broken and she couldn't fix it. Child, demon-possessed. She literally had no other options. You ever had a problem you couldn't solve? You tried everything and you can't solve it and you can't figure it out and you're just throwing your hands up and you're like, I guess I, I'm done. I don't know what to do and this is something that I probably just need to live with the rest of my life. She must have been at the end of all hope. Imagine the things she probably tried. The solutions she came up with. 
friends couldn't help her. All the counsel she got couldn't help her. All of the doctors that would probably come in. Maybe the false gods she would go and sacrifice animal after animal at the altars there. And all the things she probably tried. Nothing in her world could work. It was broken. Imagine the self-loathing and the blame she must have felt as a parent. Is this my fault? If you ever have a child that you have struggles with, it's so easy as a parent to say, this must be my fault. Did I let them get away with too much? Did I, did I let them get on social media too much? Did I, did I expose them to too much? I wonder if the woman thought, well, maybe all these false gods, I've allowed this demonic presence into her life. And she had nothing to offer, no solutions. There was nothing she could do, nowhere else to turn. Her daughter was broken, and there was no fix in sight. That's this person. So you have a place. You have Jesus' purpose. You have a person who is absolutely an outsider with no hope, no other methods, nothing. She has nothing to look forward to. That's the setting of what is about to become one of the glorious pictures of Christ's riches in His grace. Fourth thing I want us to see in this text is the proceedings. How does this all unfold? So in verse 25 it tells us, But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered, yes, Lord, even, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. I want us to see a couple things here. First, her approach. If we could walk away with only one thing this morning, walk away with her approach. Look at the details of her approach. First of all, it's on behalf of another. She comes on behalf of another. Mark three times talks about parents approaching Jesus on behalf of their children. And parents, let that sink in that we ought to be taking our children to the Lord on a regular basis. We ought to be going before the Lord on a regular basis on behalf of our children. Brothers and sisters, on behalf of one another, we ought to be going to the Lord. It says that she heard. She heard. I mean, we don't know. Maybe she was part of the, the contingent. If you flip back a couple of chapters to Mark chapter 3, uh, when Jesus is preaching and doing miracles, it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 8, that, that a... a, a, a segment a great crowd from around Tyre and Sidon came and heard all that Jesus was doing so she heard about it she she can you imagine the flood of hope that maybe came in she she heard that Jesus had been healing the sick and 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 casting out demons and and doing other kinds of miraculous things and so she heard and then it says she came that takes faith that is evidence so oftentimes we ask well how do we know what we believe how do we know that our faith is strong how do we know that if I truly believe I'll tell you one way by our actions I remember talking to the youth a number of years ago, and I, and I shared with them, you know, you want to know how you know what you believe, uh, you can tell by what you do. Because if I say I believe something, but I don't act upon it, then do I really believe it? If I believe this chair could hold me up, but I don't have the faith to sit in it, do I really believe that? If I believe that Jesus is able to answer my prayers, yet I don't go to Him in prayer for whatever I need, do I truly believe that? This woman heard that Jesus could do these things, and she said, I am going to Him. And it takes faith for her, especially because remember those barriers? She had to cross all these barriers just to get to Jesus, a religious leader. And then notice what it says. She came to him and fell down at his feet. That's posture, brothers and sisters. That's posture. That she came and she fell at his 
feet. We were talking with our girls last night. I, I, I was walking through this text with them a little bit last night, and I said, uh, if somebody comes and begs you at your feet, how important do you think the matter is to them? That's posture. She heard, she believed, she came, she fell down at his feet, and then it says she begged him. And, and the Greek word there literally means continually. In fact, if you read through Matthew's account of the story, in Matthew chapter 15, and specifically verse 22, it says that she continually begged so much that the disciples turn to Jesus and they say to him, Jesus, just send her away. She's bugging us. We're supposed to be having rest and relaxation. We're supposed to be enjoying our time at the beach. And she is here just yelling and screaming and pleading, just send her away. And she says something in that verse, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, two things specifically that, that are amazing to me. The first thing she says is, have mercy on me, which is just a plea of forgiveness. I thought she was coming to have her daughter taken care of, and she says, have mercy on me. But then she says, Lord, Son of David, which to me blows me away, because this Gentile Woman from Syrophoenicia knew more about Jesus than all the religious leaders in Jerusalem. She knew that he was king. What an incredible thing. But also note, and don't miss this, because this is the posture that we must have when we come to Jesus. She came empty-handed. She came empty-handed. She has nothing to offer. She has no credentials. She has no favors. She has no gift. She has no money. This is how and the only possible way that we can come to Jesus. And when we can get to a place where we realize that we are coming to Jesus with literally nothing to offer Him and, and just to plead upon His mercy and His grace, when we can stop saying, this is what I'm going to offer you, Jesus. If you take care of this, I'm going to do this. If you do this, I'll do this. Stop. We come to Jesus as an outsider just like this woman because that's the reality that there is a holy and just God who looks upon man who has sinned and fallen short of his glory and we are all outsiders before God. We have barriers far greater than this woman when it comes to a relationship with God. And we come before Jesus and we ought to be in a posture of kneeling and begging and pleading with literally nothing to offer him because we have nothing to offer him. Our tithes, our offerings, our prayers, our, our reading of the word, all these things are good and important, but they are not an offering to God for Him to do something for us. He was the only solution, and this was and is still today the only way to ever come to Jesus. Notice his actions, and I realize that there is potential because many people look at this text and find it confusing. Was Jesus racist? Was he mean to her? And if you read Matthew's account, it says that he, he, he doesn't answer her. She's pleading and begging, and the disciples must have looked at Jesus and said, either you need to answer her or, or kick her out. But it says that Jesus does nothing. He doesn't answer her. It's part a test for the woman and a lesson for the disciples. In fact, Jesus does the same thing for Jairus. If you remember a couple of chapters back, Jairus, the, the, the man who has a daughter who's, who's sick and dying, Jairus comes to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, come please to my house and heal my daughter. And, and Jesus says, Yeah, let's go. And he starts going and all of a sudden he gets touched by a woman. And he stops, and he pauses, and he deals with that woman, and he cares for her. And in that delay, what happens? Jairus' daughter dies. Why? Why does Jesus sometimes appear to not answer? Why does Jesus sometimes pause? There is a clear reason. He proves in the case of Jairus that he is not only able to heal the sick, but he also has power over death. Understand this, brothers and sisters, this is a very important point. God's delays in answering your prayers are always an aim to bring Him greater glory. So if Jesus is pausing to answer your request, 
It is always for the purpose to bring Him greater glory. And sometimes we don't understand that. We are impatient. We want answers. We want them now. So he paused. He doesn't answer right away. But then he responds with what is seemingly a harsh and prejudiced response. And don't miss this. He says, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Is Jesus calling this woman a dog? I want you to first notice a key word in this text. And you might want to underline it. It is an incredible word, and it wouldn't seem like it. The word is first. He says, let the children be fed first. That is not a word in the original language of priority. It is not a word of of importance. It is simply a word of order. That there is a timing. And here is where our hearts as outsiders, because we are not of the Jewish people, as outsiders, our hearts should swell. Because that the use of the word first implies there is a second. And that gives us hope. Because if Jesus would have said, let the children only be fed, all of us would be standing and sitting condemned in our sin for all eternity. But Jesus said, let the children be fed first in order that there might be a second. It says in Romans that He came first to the Jew, then to the Greek. If there's a first, it means there's a second. Then there is a kinder word here. He does say dog, but it is not the concept that we so often think of. Typically, in in Jewish culture, they would refer with a curse word the Gentiles as dogs. And they referred to them as this this vile scavenger, the dogs that roamed the yards or uh, the neighborhoods, the streets. They were scavengers. They they were mean. They would be in packs. They were were malicious. They would would scrounge up through the garbage heaps. These are the dogs, okay? But Jesus doesn't use the same Greek word for this woman. In fact, he uses a different word. He references a little puppy or a house pet, a softer word. And this is actually the approach and posture we might ought to have with God anyway, is it not? That we are dogs, outsiders. Because of sin, when it comes to God, there is a wall of separation. And if a dog is a bad thing, then that's what we are compared to God. Is it not? There's a vast and insurmountable chasm between us and God. And and you know what? To be honest, it is only offensive to us to be called a dog if we have a high view of ourselves. And there's a kingly word in this because Jesus turns to this woman and he says, let the children be fed first. He is also, remember, there's an audience here. He's teaching his disciples that he will not forsake his mission. I will feed the children first. That's my mission. Jesus came first to the Jew, it says. His mission, he is on target. And there are a lot of theological implications in all of this that we don't have time to dive into this morning. Maybe another sermon. But it suffice to say this, that the natural start, the natural root of the church had to start with the Jew. Okay, if we, we just have to understand that. And, 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 and it's about continuity, that Abraham was a Jew. Jesus came to the Jews. He was continuing His promise and His covenant. It is a natural flow. It is continuity. And that's why He said first to them. So that's Jesus' response, but notice next her appeal, and this is what caused my heart to explode as I began to consider it. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Her appeal is this amazing thing. 
She picks up and uses the exact same term, not that vile dog, the same term that Jesus uses as little puppies, and, and she expresses that she is more than willing. She is more than willing. Get this, brothers and sisters. She is more than willing to be a dog if it means she can have crumbs from Jesus. She is more than willing to accept a role of sub a uh, 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 human, sub, whatever, she is willing to be humbled in such a place to, to, to understand, she says essentially, I'll take the crumbs. What an understanding of Jesus' grace. The crumbs, they're enough. And in this statement is her acknowledgement that Jesus is Master. She says, I'll be, I'll be a little puppy if I'm allowed to be in the same place. I'll eat the scraps that fall. I'll take it. I'll take whatever you give me. And notice his actions. He says, for this statement. And Matthew tells us that he commends her faith. He says, oh, how great a faith she has. You know, there's only two times in the entire New Testament where Jesus commends and makes a statement of praise about people for their faith, and both of them were Gentiles. And it says that he casts out the demon. For this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. The last thing I want us to see is the picture in all of this. What I want you to especially leave with this morning is this, something very insightful to me this week that I was reading about that I found fascinating. We read this little, because it's a parable that Jesus uses when He speaks to her. He says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He uses this illustration. And, and we look at this oftentimes and we say, yeah, I get it. The, the children are the nation of Israel. The dogs are the Gentiles, specifically in this case, this woman. But there's actually three people in this parable. And we miss the third one. The third one is the bread. He says, first, feed the children, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Over and over again, in Mark and in Matthew and John, we read about the bread. The bread, especially in Mark. I mean, we just got done with the feeding of the 5,000, right? With what? Jesus taking the bread and breaking it. You can see the disciples saying, we don't have enough bread. We don't have enough. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You are missing the point. In fact, in, at, at, when Jesus crosses walking on the water, we get this little obscure verse, if you remember right, at the end of that little story where it says the disciples didn't comprehend this. They didn't understand it because they did not understand the miraculous nature of the loaves, the bread, and I can see Jesus in his mind saying to the disciples over and over again, guys, you don't get it. I am the bread. In fact, when he crosses over, he, he welcomes the, the crowd in, in this fascinating account in John chapter 6. And I encourage you to just flip over there with me. Jesus feeds the, the 5,000 and he gets in a boat and he crosses over to the other side. And you've got this, in, this little story that kind of jumps out at you. Rick read some of it this morning. Starting at verse 25, it says that when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but why? Because you ate your fill of the loaves. Bread. Verse 27, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. And then they said to Him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him who, whom He has sent. So they said to Him, then what sign do you do? 
They, he just did a sign. What sign do you do that we may see it and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus says, aha, now I can show you. I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. They ate bread that God supplied. I am the bread that is now here eternal. And Jesus looks at this woman and he says to her, we need to give the children the bread first. Because Jesus comes to the children first and then he offers himself. And what an incredible thing that we look at this text that it's, 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 the crumbs are enough. And not only that, we, we talk about this, this idea of, of Jesus and, and, and our posture towards him. Brothers and sisters, if we have pride so much that we say we are offended at the term being a dog, an outsider, Jesus lowers himself below man in that he is willing to be eaten by the dogs. He just got done with a discussion with the Pharisees who are offended at things that go in and defile a person. And Jesus says, no, no, I am the bread of life that when I am eaten, the defiled become clean. This is the picture of the gospel, is it not? We are all outsiders in desperate need of Jesus. We are outsiders with a chasm so great that we shall never be able to cross. With a chasm so great and so vast that we will never be able to reach Him. That because of sin and condemnation, we are more than just an outsider. We are vile. And we have but one thing to do because we need Jesus and we are in desperation of cleansing. And we need Jesus and so we must, as this woman does, come and beg and plead before Him with hands wide open and empty and say, Jesus, You are enough and I will take whatever scraps and crumbs because Your grace in as little amount as You want to give me and as much as You want to give me is more than sufficient. And it will feed and cleanse. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life that he that eats me will never hunger, will never thirst because you are finding in him satisfaction. Jesus must have looked at those disciples when they said, we don't have enough bread. All we have is this. Jesus says, I'm going to not only feed and satisfy them, I'm going to supply an abundance and an overflow because that is the nature of him. And those who come to him now, don't miss this. Those who come to him, whether as dogs or what, are no longer referred to as dogs, but as children. And we sit at the table. So what do I want us to walk away with here? Number one is, do you believe the gospel? The grace and power of Jesus and His might, the vastness of His riches, that even a small spark is enough. Let that swell in your hearts to know that Jesus is more than enough, that He supplies. And, and the reality is that as we look at this woman, she had literally absolutely no right, no, no, no possibility, no hope. She, she had nothing but to go to Jesus, the one and only. And that is the truth of us as human beings, that because of sin, we have fallen short of Him. And we will never get to Him apart from Jesus. He is the only way. He is our only hope. He is our only satisfaction. And His grace is sufficient and is enough. Second, Jesus wants us to come cry out to Him with empty hands. I don't know what your problem is today. You may not have a demon-possessed child, but you have a Savior who offers grace upon grace upon grace, and He says, come to Me, cry out to Me. He wants you to come to Him more than anything, and He wants you to plead with Him and to ask of Him, and He will, as a good Father, provide good things to His children because He loves them. He may remember, pause, but don't consider silence as Him not answering. He is trying to bring greater glory to Himself and to His Son who has redeemed His people. And on a side note, if you look at the disciples, they're not very encouraging in this whole matter, are they? 
And I would say this, as you come and you plead to Jesus, don't let the followers of Jesus ever discourage you from that. And also, don't be a follower of Jesus that discourages another person from going to Jesus. We ought to be carrying one another to Jesus' feet. We ought to be encouraging one another. If you've got a problem, let's go to Jesus. I can't tell you how many times when I have struggles or problems in my life because of something that's going on, and the last thing I think of is to go to Jesus, but He wants us more than anything to go to Him first. And we try and come up with solutions for everything and then we encourage one another in, in things that aren't necessarily Jesus. And, and we ought to be doing that, pointing one another to Jesus, 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 because He is the bread of life. And even His crumbs are grace. And the third thing I want you to see from this is the Greek tense when it says, He tells her the demon has left. The Greek text is in such a tense that it is permanent. Here's what he tells her. The demon has left your daughter forever without the possibility of coming back. That's what he tells this woman. The demon is gone and cannot come back. There's not he goes out and he finds seven more and comes back. She's gone forever. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel that when we come to Jesus and he cleanses us of our sins, they are gone forever. It is finished. He said it at the cross. You can't expect to, to live in fear that it's going to come back. That's why Jesus says in, in, through John in his letter that we have no fear because perfect love casts out fear. And who but Jesus offers us perfect love? And he says it is finished. It's finished. It's done because of faith. The last thing I want you to see is this. She was praised for great faith. And there are two requirements always for great faith. Number one, a low view of self. Everybody that was praised for having great faith had a low view of self and a high view of Christ. You want great faith? You say, how do I have great faith in my life? How do I exemplify great faith to my children? How do I exemplify great faith to my coworkers? Start with a low view of self and a high view of Christ. John the Baptist had it right when he said in John chapter 3, verse 30, I must decrease and he must increase. Side note that is fascinating to me. I don't know what happens. We don't know what happens shortly after this. The demon's gone. What happens in that region of Tyre and Sidon? But we can know this. In Acts chapter 21, verses 3 through 6, it says that Paul, on a journey to Jerusalem, stops in the region of Tyre and Sidon, and a whole host of church comes out to greet him. 25 years later, a host of church comes out to greet Jesus and they go and they pray with Him and He spends a week with them. And as He leaves that region, they cry to Him and say, don't, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to be arrested. And they all kneel on the beach before He gets on the boat and they pray together. I wonder, was this woman there? 25 years later, yeah, that daughter, she got healed and, and the demon left her and she's got a demon-possessed child of her own now. That was a joke. <laughs> Crumbs are enough. Bread over and over again mentioned. It's an analogy. It's an incredible analogy. And when we understand it, we come to a place that uh, as the elders come forward, we come to a place of incredible significance because this all culminates together into one thing. Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took what? Bread. And He broke it. He said, this is My body broken for you. Take, eat in remembrance of Me. And what a fitting thing to, it is for us as brothers and sisters, no longer dogs as outsiders, but if we have come to a place where we believe in the name of Jesus and in the sufficiency of His sacrifice on my behalf, we can come to Him not as, as broken people, but as children of God. And we can participate in the bread of life that He offers to us. 
I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate because this is the gospel. And we have a woman who deserved nothing, and she comes to Jesus, and he gives her everything. And Jesus does that for us. And he says, now, in remembrance of that, celebrate. Celebrate at a marriage pre-supper that one day we will be united forever in his glory and we will celebrate at a feast. If you are part of that family, if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you have said His sacrifice is enough and you have put your hopes and you've come to Him empty, not offering Him, hey, these are the good things I've done, but saying, Jesus, I have nothing to offer you. I need you. I am desperate for you. And you are His child. Then celebrate with me. But if that is not your story, you haven't come to Jesus in the hopes of salvation that He is the only way, if you're still clinging and holding on to some sort of credential that you have when you come to Him, then pass by. But don't pass the opportunity today to enter into His kingdom by faith in what He offers. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You We thank you that we are offered more than just crumbs. We are your children. You declare in your word what great love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God and so now we are. And Father, we partake of this communion in recognition of you. And in recognition that we are sinners that are saved by grace. And that it's all you. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that it's so vast, so deep and rich. Father, we worship you this morning. We thank you in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.